realistically, there may be those in industry that wish all of this stuff to be done away from the government, but when you're spending billions of pounds of taxpayers' money, I think members of parliament expect ministers to remain accountable. Welcome to Calling All Stations, the transport podcast. I'm Christian Walmart. I've covered transport for the past 30 years. In every episode, we try to keep you up to date with the most engaging news stories, policy developments and interviews in the transport world. And with me is my regular co-presenter, Mark Walker, who has spent decades looking at transport policies and legislation. So, Mark, what are we covering today? Hello, Christian, and hello to our listeners. Today, we'll be looking at the progress that the UK government is making in Parliament in passing its uh, proposed transport legislation in a number of different sectors. We'll also be looking at the consequences of the reshuffle of ministers in the UK government and the new people in post at the Department for Transport. We'll then turn our attention to the situation facing our original equipment manufacturers, our train builders in the, uh, the rail sector and the shortage of orders and the consequences that's having on their prospects and on employment. And then finally, we'll have a look at some proposed changes in the amount of luggage that passengers can take onto British trains. Christian, last week saw the publication of two new bills in the UK Parliament that were announced by the government in the King's speech. Uh, One of them is the Automated Vehicles Bill, and the other is the London Pedicabs Bill. So uh, perhaps we should turn our attention to those and, and what they contain and what they propose. And shall we start with the Automated Vehicles Bill, a subject that you take a very close interest in? Uh, Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, it is rather odd, uh, Mark, that uh, the methods of transport that most people use most of the time, uh, like trains um, uh, and buses and the like, are not subject to any uh, legislation. And the priority has been given to uh, this automated vehicles bill and a bill around pedicabs, which actually I suspect you know very few people will uh, travel on aut- any automated cars in the next uh, few years, and uh, a few tra- people do travel on pedicabs, cabs mainly in London. But hey, uh, that's the priorities of the government, and we have to reflect that. I've uh, ploughed my way through the automated vehicles bill because, as you say, it's a subject of great interest to me. I wrote a book called driverless cars on a road to nowhere uh, a few years ago. And uh, clearly this is an attempt to make sure they do go somewhere. But uh, I think it poses a lot of problems for the people who are promoting this technology, of which actually Richie Sunak is one. They're very, he's very enthusiastic about tech, isn't he? He's a tech boy. He has chats with Elon Musk and kind of their tech boys together and he loves that sort of thing. But uh, this bill, which is a hundred uh, sections long, shows uh, how complex the issues around this is. And most clearly, the biggest difficulty, and the Select Committee report looked at this, and of course, the Law Commission spent four or five years looking at this, which is why uh, this legislation has uh, come through and why it's so complex, which is the issue about who exactly is in control of the vehicle when. So the legislation says that basically you have to apply 
for a registration uh, for any automated vehicle. And the interesting thing is what they've specified is that you have to apply for any feature that is said to be automatic. So it might be your steering or it might be uh, the control of the accelerator or uh, it might be uh, some sort of aspect of braking. And you have to specify that these are automated in some kind of way or other before you can fit them to uh, your vehicles. And they're very kind of hot on the idea that you don't kind of exceed uh, in your marketing what the car is capable of. And now this is very interesting because only this week uh, in America, Tesla has come up against a court case issued by the widow of a man killed in a Tesla car because it was in what uh, Tesla have called full self-driving mode. And uh, this woman is arguing that Tesla wrongly implied that uh, the car could essentially drive itself. And this car smashed in uh, to a lorry when it was in this sort of semi-automated uh, mode. And the, the issue here, of course, is that it's very difficult to actually uh, ensure that the car is capable of driving itself before you kind of lose control by allowing it to be automated. And that's what this legislation is very concerned about. Now, Tesla uh, still markets in this country, uh, you know, and there, where there are tens of thousands of Tesla cars around, uh, it's, it still markets this idea of full self-driving, uh, which is software, which is updated kind of periodically, which costs extra for uh, Tesla's uh, users, uh, owners. Even but though you can't use it no in this country at the moment, presumably, Christian, you can't actually switch you, you, into that self-driving mode. You're not supposed to use it in this country at the moment, but uh, uh, clearly uh, uh, pe people do. Um, and uh, that's what the legislation is kind of uh, really trying to ensure that uh, people only use uh, aspects of self-driving that have been registered and legislated for and kind of are clear about what the limits of that is. And I've talked to somebody about this uh, who's an expert in this area, and, and they reckon that Tesla is going to come foul of this law and that they will no longer be able to market something called full self-driving, which clearly isn't full self-driving. It's nothing of the sort. It's, it's you know, what one would call driver aid. It might enable you to kind of speed along the motorway oh, I see. Uh, without touching the steering wheel or so on. It's going to make life difficult for uh, those promoting this technology. And of course, they've publicly, they've actually welcomed it. But, uh, you know, I think this is good legislation. It's, it's kind of much tighter more tightly controlled uh, than in the United States, where, interesting, of course, they have come up against difficulties, which we've uh, talked about before, the fact that uh, one of these cruise cars actually drove over uh, a pedestrian, and, and, and as a result, Cruise, which is General Motors, has withdrawn all its uh, self-driving cars and robo-taxis uh, from the whole country, and the chief executive has now resigned and so on. So they're in somewhat chaos. So it's very odd that, you know, here we are, spending a lot of legislative time 
trying to enable uh, this technology when actually it's come up against great difficulties in the United States. And meanwhile, we're ignoring things like uh, the railways bill, which is uh, not actually going to happen in this parliament. But we'll come on to that. On we'll come like on to handicaps. that. We'll come on to that in a moment. But let me let me just pursue this issue with you because of the, the you know your, the level of study that you've put into this subject. So are you saying then that the automated vehicles bill, although it's being presented as an enabler of of autonomous driving, uh, autonomous driving vehicles? in Great Britain, you're saying that in fact, it could pose difficulties and place additional restrictions on the manufacturers and promoters of supposedly autonomous vehicles. Absolutely, Um, because it it makes uh, uh, very clear that uh, you can't do what I've always said you can't do, which you can't have a half self-driving car. So uh, it will legislate for bits of the cars that can be uh, then uh, implemented, like functions, as I said, like driving or like uh, steering or uh, the control of the uh, uh, throttle or whatever. But it won't allow uh, any full self-driving until all those uh, facilities, uh, all those functions are kind of possible to do self-driving. And then... And then, crucially, it puts 100% responsibility on to the manufacturers. So if there is then an accident, the manufacturers uh, will have to uh, pay for the bill, the compensation, the insurance and whatever. And I think that will be a great deterrence because it doesn't take a, a lot of you know, accidents and some serious accidents and, and deaths and whatever to uh, place an enormous burden on the people developing this technology. So whilst they might kind of publicly be saying, oh yes, uh, you know, we've been waiting for this legislation. I think trying to work their way around it is not going to be easy. And yeah, you know, this has a hundred clauses and uh, several schedules. And so it's, it's uh, it, you know, it's a recipe for very complex uh, legal cases. So um, I, in America, there's a much more laissez-faire attitude towards this whereby you know, there's no clear legislation about it. And what happens is that particular departments of transport from particular states kind of legislate what's allowed to happen. Whereas in this country, clearly, the Department for Transport is going to have the central role. That's that's very interesting where the, the substance seems to be different from the spin. And it will be interesting to see how this is taken forward. The legislation is actually starting off in the House of Lords rather than the House of Commons. And that tends to be an approach that's taken when a bill is regarded as less controversial. But I imagine their their lordships, uh, particularly with the ability of so many of them and the life experience of them, that many of them have in, in diving into the detail, could have great fun with this uh, in, in exploring the implications and the, the contradictions that you've just exposed. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And, and I suspect there might be some MPs also who uh, have uh, some access to grind on this. So this is not going to be easy legislation to get through. Let's turn our attention to the other bill that was published in the past week. This is what um, Americans, I think, would call a a beltway issue. But in our case, the beltway is the M25 that effectively is the the transport boundary around uh, Greater London. 
but this is the bill to regulate the uh, pedicabs that operate really just in central London, another King's speech commitment, uh, and another bill that's being introduced into the House of Lords. And, and you've had a look at this as well, Christian. Uh, yes, and this is uh, mainly about enabling transport for London to register uh, pedicabs, because apparently uh, uh, so far they've slipped between uh, legislation because they're kind of like bicycles, so they don't come under the sort of minicab, private hire legislation, they're not taxes, uh, so there's been no legislation about this. And I, I'm not sure they operate in any other cities uh, in Britain apart from uh, uh, London, where there are quite a cluster of them around Covent Garden and Leicester Square and Piccadilly, uh, you know, mainly uh, in the evenings. Um, and they're completely unregulated, although I have noticed that some, several of them now do put up their kind of price list, which are not cheap. They're always a tenner for a short ride. Um, but the thing is, Mark, that they really angered the taxi drivers who absolutely hate them. I mean, you just uh, only have to get into a cab and if there's a pedicab in the way, they'll start swearing and uh, because they think that they take away a lot of their business, which is nonsense. There's only, you know, maybe a hundred of these pedicabs uh, uh, around uh, London. They're very much aimed at tourists. Um, you know, they pretty much aimed at reasonably clear days because it's not much fun being in a pedicab if it's pouring with rain and so on. Um, you know, they're a pretty marginal business, but boy, have they angered the the taxi business. I suspect that a lot of MPs have had their ears bent by taxi drivers moaning. You could imagine, this. yes. So we've ended up <laughs> with a pedicabs bill. This is the legendary and, lobbying power of of the London uh, black taxi uh, community. So uh, um, absolutely, but whether anybody manifest. cares about this very much, apart from a few ripped off tourists uh, and the taxi drivers, uh, I, I doubt very much. And again, it, it it does show that you know this this is something that I think accords with the government's kind of stopping the war against motorists because you know, pedicabs go fairly slowly and presumably get in the way of cars and uh, and they're seen as kind of, uh, you know, cluttering up London streets. So, uh, well, hey, let's have the pedicabs uh, bill. Whereas actually, uh, Mark, there's a much more important mode of transport that needs legislation where some 25 people have been killed on these things, which is of course, scooters and electric scooters, which, um, you know, are quite widely used. And essentially, apart from the test ones, which are the tr in certain trial areas in, in London, and a few other cities, um, they are actually illegal. But, you know, there's a shop around uh, the corner from me in Islington, which actually sells these things and, and uh, uh, you know, is, is completely devoted to a big shop with kind of lots and lots of these things. And, you know, there's uh, people using these all the time. So often ridden on the pavement, um, so often uh, nearly always ridden without a helmet and uh, uh, and uh, showing all too often a complete disregard for other pavement and road users, in my experience. Uh, uh, yes, as, as you're a, a pedestrian and a non-driver and a non-cyclist, you must feel this strongly and, and rightly so. And uh, you know, they, 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 they are going to start killing a few people uh, just because they do go. I mean, they're supposed to be limited to 15 miles an hour, but I think the, the ones that you buy aren't and they go much faster than 15 miles an hour. And, sure. uh, 
really they they do pose a risk. I, my view is that they should be on roads, not on pavements, and they should be banned from pavements. But there is no legislation about them at all. So, uh, you know, the pedicabs bill is all very well and stuff. But they and, and, and really talking of and, and, and talking of uh, uh, pavement related legislation that there apparently isn't parliamentary time for. Um, I'd love to see legislation to ban pavement parking as well, on which there was a House of Commons Transport Committee uh, set of recommendations several years ago. And uh, even you just can't help noticing how many more vehicles seem to be parked on the pavement these days than used to be the case uh, just a few years ago. Yes, no, I often see things on Twitter about, you know, people having to push buggers into the road because uh, somebody's parked on the pavement. Yes, there should be a really default position whereby it's illegal to park on pavements uh, unless you're specifically allowed to do so. So, yes, I mean, it, I suppose it's, I mean, just to make a wider political point, which, you know, we're not really here to do, but I do think that one should just make the point that it's remarkable that this government is going down making legislation about all sorts of uh, issues that are not affecting very many people and ignoring those that are. Well, let's then turn to the situation with the legislation for the railways in Great Britain, because uh, as we reported in the previous episode of Calling All Stations, the government uh, announced at the time of the King's speech, but not in the King's speech, that there was going to be a draft rail reform bill, which would be subject to pre-legislative scrutiny. So that means not actually properly introducing the bill into Parliament, but asking a select committee to do a very detailed investigation into the proposals uh, contained within the bill, and actually uh, usually to invite evidence and submissions from interested third parties as well. Now, the uh, Transport Secretary, Mark Harper MP, was in front of the House of Commons Transport Committee just a few days ago, on a, on a sort of omnibus uh, review of all of the work of him and his ministers and his department. But one of the issues he was questioned on closely by the chair of the committee in particular and other members was on how the draft uh, rail reform bill was going to be taken forward, but also uh, the question of, of why the government won't legislate for the full implementation of its own rail reform programme. Is there a realistic chance that we will have that scrutiny and then proceed to full legislation in this session? Um, I think it's unlikely that we'll be able to proceed to full legislation this session, um, but I think it's important to do the scrutiny of the draft legislation because I think for, there's two reasons. I think firstly because inevitably in these processes, however well we've drafted it, uh, the scrutiny process both from uh, the contribution of members of the committee, but also the witnesses that will be listened to, will inevitably produce improvements to that process. That's always what happens in these things. So the legislation, when it's introduced, will be better. Um, but uh, I think it, it, we're not going to have time in this session to, to be able to proceed to getting it on the statute book. So I think the important thing is to get it scrutinised, to get it into as good a shape as possible, so that actually, when it is introduced... Uh, neither House will feel that it needs significant amendment. Now, asked whether the um, an actual rail reform bill could be introduced in this parliamentary session, uh, Mr Harper was uh, pretty uh, clear that that was extremely unlikely, verging on the impossible, to happen. 
And of course, as we're in the last session of the present parliament, that means the actual rail reform bill could not be introduced until after a general election, and then only presumably if the Conservatives um, emerge from that election victorious. But then uh, the chair of the committee pressed the Secretary of State to ask, well, well what's the problem with your legislation then? Why, why do you kind of lack the confidence to bring forward your own proposals, which were initially published in a white paper two and a half years ago. And, and I'd just like to read for our listeners the, uh, the briefly the transcript of what the Secretary of State said, because it's actually quite revealing. And uh, Mr. Harper said um, that there had been a difference of opinion about what the proposed Great British Railways organization should do. And uh, he said in, in precise answer to the, the chair's question. Well, I, I think it's about how you, how you, the exact structure of uh, the, the corporation that would be set up, there will be a debate about the extent to which ministers are still accountable. Um, the government has some views about that. There's, a, there's clearly a balance to strike between bringing track and train together, um, making decisions, operational day-to-day -day decisions, but recognising certainly at the moment and probably for the next number of years that there's still a very important role for the taxpayer given the 25 to 30% revenue reduction in real terms that the industry has faced, that the government is still has to remain accountable for the spending of that significant amount of taxpayers' money. So I think there is still a debate about, it, you know, the re realistically, there may be those in industry that wish all of this stuff to be done away from the government, but when you're spending billions of pounds of taxpayers' money, I think members of parliament expect ministers to remain accountable. So, so I think, Christian, there we have some uh, revealing of the, the argument that is at the heart of this problem. And the, the proposition in the William Shapps plan, review, uh, uh, plan for rail uh, two and a half years ago was very much that uh, the arm's length body, Great British Railways, would be set up and just get on with it. And uh, clearly there is a desire at the heart of government, and this probably comes from the Treasury as well as from the Department for Transport, to keep a bit more control than was uh, envisaged at that time. Well, that's absolutely fascinating, Mark. It does uh, explain to some extent uh, why they have managed to uh, push this legislation uh, through. And it's a bit like uh, driverless cars and not being able to have a half driverless car. Um, in a way, you, you can't really have a half state-owned railway. And I think that, that is the problem. So either uh, when you integrate the railways, uh, you do it in the private sector or in the public sector. But if you're trying to kind of retain uh, some big private interests and yet want the government to ensure that uh, the strategies and projects of the rail industry are still within its control, uh, then you've got a problem. And I've always said that, that you can't kind of really reintegrate the railways unless you actually renationalize them once and for all and that you do uh, the government does then become responsible for uh, the balance sheet and then in my view ought to then kind of pass it on to a, a, a hands uh, arm's length uh, body uh, like one would call it british rail uh, and leave them to get on with it with a, a budget that is being set by government but clearly um oddly enough uh, this government doesn't dare do that
Do you think that's the right interpretation? I think that's a very, uh, a very, very powerful interpretation of what's going on. Uh, but because we're going to have this uh, draft uh, bill published at some point, and we're going to have the pre-legislative scrutiny presumably undertaken by the House of Commons Transport Committee, more of this is going to be exposed to the light of day. And I'm sure we'll be returning to the subject again here on Calling All Stations. Oh, well, thank you, Mark. That, that has certainly taken the debate further forward. Uh, so, Mark, you've been looking at uh, rather hidden changes in the ministerial team because as a consequence of Suella Braverman going and uh, David Cameron arriving and all that, very little attention has been paid to the fact that a whole lot of junior ministers have been changed and you've been keeping tabs on that. Yes, indeed. There have been some very interesting uh, appointments at the UK Department for Transport, as you rightly say, uh, Christian, overshadowed by the departure of Suella Braverman as Home Secretary and the arrival of David, now Lord Cameron, as Foreign Secretary. So we actually have three new ministers in the Department for Transport. Uh, and uh, we've said goodbye to Jesse Norman, to the long, very long serving uh, Baroness Veer and to Richard Holden, who went off to become a chair of the Conservative Party. So the three new ministers, uh, let's start with Guy Opperman, MP. Um, he's the Member of Parliament for Hexham in uh, the north of England. And um, he has, has become the Parliamentary Under Secretary of State, primarily responsible for roads, including road maintenance, road safety, but also active travel, cycling and walking and freight and uh, a, a, with a cross-cutting responsibility for accessibility and issues uh, around access for, for people with disabilities. So, so the potholes minister. Yes, you could say that, actually. Yes, I'm sure that will feature significantly in uh, his ministerial red box. Um, the next uh, person on our list is uh, as, also as a parliamentary undersecretary of state. So this is the kind of third rank of um, ministerial seniority within a government department. So um, Anthony Brown has joined the team and Anthony Brown's the member for uh, South Cambridgeshire and he's become the minister for aviation, uh, but also with some other interesting um uh roles added there's something called aviation accessibility i'm not quite sure what that is um but he's also the minister for transport decarbonization air quality uh, technology including autonomous vehicles as we were discussing earlier and drones and e-scooters space that's the job i'd love to have minister for space <laughs> uh, and uh, skills and and science and research so that's Anthony Brown. And then the third a new member of the team is Lord Davis of Gower, who previously was a member of Parliament as Byron Davis. Um, and um, Lord Davis of Gower is the minister in the House of Lords. So effectively, he covers everything that uh, transport related in the House of Lords. But he has some specific responsibilities as well, including for the maritime industry, uh, and international and union connectivity. Um, so those are our three new ministers. Um, we have Hugh Merriman, of course, staying on as Minister of State 
So that's the second ranked uh, position in the department responsible for rail and HS2. And Mark Harper continues as Secretary of State for Transport with responsibility for everything. Well, I must say, there's a bit of a loss there. I mean, Jesse Norman was uh, one of the uh, more interesting uh, Tory ministers. He had, uh, he, was, he was quite supportive of cycling, uh, but also, you know, somebody one could be prepared to debate with issues about like autonomous vehicles and so on. So uh, quite a loss there. And of course, Baroness Vare has built up a very good reputation in the uh, House of Lords as, as quite an effective uh, and articulate minister. And uh, clearly that's earned her a promotion to, to the Treasury. But again, those are a bit of a loss. And with kind of, you know, with the fag end of Parliament, I mean, these poor new ministers, you know, transport's a complicated area, as as we know. Uh, they're not going to get much time to, to learn their brief. I mean, particularly Anthony Brown's uh, scope seems to be, uh, you know, vast numbers of different kind of subjects. And, you know, uh, he was going to struggle to actually uh, get to grips with that. But good luck to them all. In earlier episodes, we've touched on the issues facing our original equipment manufacturers, our train builders uh, in Great Britain and in the UK. Um, and uh, Christian, you've been having a closer look at this issue. Uh, yes, indeed. Well, I was struck with the fact that we're about to get our fourth uh, site. Uh, I, I largely, I mean, I know they're uh, now called original equipment manufacturers. Uh, they're largely assembly plants, uh, although Derby of the four, Derby is the one with the most uh, manufactured. So we're about to get a fourth one uh, early next year in Goole, uh, in Yorkshire, which is uh, uh, Siemens are going to manufacture uh, the trains there. We've already got CAF in Newport. And we've got, of course, uh, at Newton Acliffe, Hitachi. And we've uh, got uh, by far the biggest one at Derby, where um, they have lost some jobs, haven't they? Just uh, had some job announcement uh, uh, changes, Mark, haven't they? I think they're consulting on around about 1,300 possible redundancies at the moment, Christian. I think that was the news of uh, recent days. Um, and uh, that's the process that uh, employers such as this have to go through. Uh, but it's and this been... is something that's happened before at Derby. Well, it, well, in, well indeed, and, and something that I, I have some sort of first-hand experience of uh, back from 2010, 2011, when the uh, Lake train order was awarded to Siemens uh, at that time to be manufactured in Germany. Uh, this was a very serious blow for what was then the Bombardier factory in Derby, now the Alstom factory. Uh, and I and my colleagues in Cogitamus were, were part of the big campaign to save the, the Derby factory back in uh, 2011, um, which was ultimately successful because the government was able to bring forward uh, opportunities for the, the company to bid for other contracts. In particular, there was a big contract for uh, trains for uh, the, the South Central Network, I think it was at the time, that was um, available to for Bombardier to bid for. They did bid for it. They were successful. And that saved the factory. And actually, then... And of course, led, they got... Plus, later they got on, the they, they, they won the order for the Elizabeth Line trains and a number of other uh, orders as well for their new Aventra 
train, which has been deployed quite widely across uh, GB since then. So they've been on a bit of a roll, actually, for the last uh, decade or so. But but of, of course, interestingly, one of the one of the consequences of that campaign and the renewed interest that it generated in train building in the UK was that other overseas manufacturers recognised that uh, they would kind of improve their chances of winning orders uh, in the UK, particularly in a post-Brexit UK, I think, if they were to set up, as you say, assembly or manufacturing uh, facilities within these islands. So we went from well, that having... was that was actually a, it was a attempt by Chris Grayling to kind of show that post Brexit uh, we could still manufacture things. So he greatly encouraged the uh, arrival of CAF and uh, Siemens. But and you know, Hitachi were already as, um, in the process of setting up here, of course, because they'd won the Intercity Express order, and that was yeah. part of the deal was that they would set up the Newton Acre factory. Um, so that was already in process. Yeah, so we now find ourselves with with four plants rather than one, and, and no orders, Mark. That's the problem, <laughs> isn't probably, it? We haven't yeah. had a new order apparently for the last three years or something. Yeah, uh, um, apart from the great news, um, I think it was just about ten days ago that um, CAF had been awarded an order by uh, LNER for ten new uh, tri-mode trains for the uh, East Coast Intercity route which I understand it to be assembled in Newport. Um, but that's the first order for a very long time. And it's, and it's 10 trains. It's Martin. 10 it's trains. It's not going <laughs> right. to kind of uh, keep right. things going for very long. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that's my point about this, is that you know, this policy has, has resulted in a glut of train manufacturers and uh, a dearth of actual trains to for them to produce. Um, and, uh, you know, several big orders, in fact, have gone to Stadler and the like, which, which haven't got any uh, factory here at all. And, uh, you know, it, it really highlights the lack of any sensible uh, policy either on this or an overall industrial strategy, because, uh, you know, these these uh, companies are now going to struggle. These plants are going to struggle. And I suspect that what's happening at, at Awesome in Derby is not going to be the last of it. And of course, with the uh, reigning back of HS2, they're going to lead uh, fewer trains, which are going to be produced by a, a mix of Alstom and, and Hitachi. And that's probably one of the only big orders in the offing at the moment. I mean, there are a, a couple of others that might happen. I think Chilton got something. There. But uh, what I'm told by people in the industry is that, uh, you know, the supply chain is already shedding jobs left, right and centre. And that you know, to, to keep this going, they needed to put in the orders a couple of years ago, and they haven't done that. So the supply chain is uh, shedding jobs. And now, at some stage, uh, these manufacturers, will, uh, these OEMs, as we now call them, will also have to shed jobs. And, and I think this is, for me, the, the most worrying part in a sense of, of history repeating itself, because it does appear that the train building industry has sort of dropped out of political governmental consciousness back to the level it was in sort of 2010 uh, because the UK government announced only last week I think it was a huge kind of program of support for industries associated with net zero um, and decarbonization whether that's alternative energy or electric vehicles um, and uh, uh, and sort of digital type industries 
And yet you, you can't get more net zero than trains, particularly modern electric trains. So why don't we have that kind of commitment in the, the train building sector and indeed the resources to, to go with it? And to, and to electrify more lines. Which well, indeed, kind of, indeed, because the electric yeah. trains are the, 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 the most net the zero cruise. of them all, aren't they? So so it does it does suggest that there's a bit of a kind of lacuna in um, in sort of government thinking here and also um, not thinking through the consequences of decisions, as you rightly identify, to um, cut back on the HS2 project in is an infrastructure project, has implications all the way through for the delivery of trains and all those many hundreds of companies in the train building supply chain. Well, let's hope our friends in the Labour Party are going to be aware of uh, what happens when you have no kind of clear industrial uh, strategy, uh, either generally or specifically for the railway industry, and um, start to address that, which they need to really start to address that now if they're going to uh, hit the ground running uh, when and if, uh, uh, hopefully when, uh, they take over. Here's Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Uh, well, I was on the uh, Jeremy Vine show uh, the other day because apparently uh, LNER, which runs the trains up the East Coast, uh, is now specifying that you're only allowed one large piece of luggage and two smaller ones. And in fact, uh, Lumo, their rivals, uh, only allow you one big uh, piece of luggage and uh, then a smaller one. So uh, this is uh, not new, but it rather shocked a lot of people. Um, and I think Ryanair got into, into the act actually criticising this. Or people were saying that, oh, this is like uh, travelling on Ryanair. You don't have to, uh, uh, you know, we're going to have to pay for luggage. Now, that's not true. You don't have to actually pay for anything uh, unless you do take lots of extra luggage. And it's discretionary. But in fact, there's a long history to this, uh, actually. Older listeners might remember this, that, you know, you could uh, in the past get on the platform when British Rail was running trains and uh, some porter would come up and say, excuse me, sir, uh, but uh, you've got too much luggage there and you're going to have to pay 10 bob to take that on the train. So, um, you know, there's always been a restriction. Uh, if you look at the terms of uh, carriage, um, the... Uh, Train operating companies are uh, have discretion over what uh, they take and don't take. So it's a bit unfair, I think, to to criticise uh, the train companies. And indeed, you know, it is a hassle. I mean, I travelled on a Lubo train uh, a couple of months ago, which was so jam packed with uh, luggage that actually the trolley getting uh, through couldn't actually uh, get through until the whole luggage uh, issue was sorted out, and, and people were finally kind of actually able to, to move around and get to the loo and so on. So uh, there's clearly an issue here. I mean, one of the things is the train companies did put in too many seats and not enough luggage space. And I think there's an awareness of that. Some of those seats need to be taken out. But of course, if you're running a railway on the profit motive, then you want to actually ensure as many seats as possible. So um, that's something for the uh, train operator to look at. Calling All Stations, the Transport Podcast with Christian Walmart is produced by Cogitamus Limited, a leading provider of public affairs consultancy services in the sector. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. 
Do also follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our handle is at All Stations Pod.